0: Welcome everyone. My name is Stephanie and I will be hosting today's Awaken Call. Thank you for joining us from wherever you happen to be in the world. The intention behind these calls is to plant seeds of awareness and transformation within ourselves and our communities through conversations with individuals whose journeys and work inspire us. Awaken Calls is an initiative of service space. A distributed, global, all-volunteer community committed to the principle that by changing ourselves, we change the world. Behind each of these calls is an entire service-based team whose invisible work allows us to hold this space. In a few minutes, our moderator, Birju will begin by engaging in an initial dialogue with our speaker, Amishi Jha, and by the top of the hour, we'll open into a circle of sharing where we will draw upon reflections and questions from our listeners. At any time during the call, you could submit your questions or comments via the webcast form on our live stream page, or you could email us at ask at servicebase.org. That's ask, A-S-K, at servicebase.org. And whether you're tuning in live or listening to the recording later, we're grateful for your presence in co-creating and deepening the collective energy of this conversation. And a friendly reminder that if there is a technological glitch or any other issue for any of the speakers, please just hang in there while our team works to quickly bring the speakers back on. So now, let us start with a minute of silence to anchor ourselves into this space. Thank you and welcome again. Our moderator for the conversation today with Amish, Amishi Ja is Birju Panja. Birju is a longtime volunteer with Service Space. He is interested in how to bring the topic of transformation in human development into business and finance. He has played decision-making roles with multiple financial institutions pushing the boundaries of finance for good. Most recently that has included bringing concepts such as dialogue practice and shadow work into the office. Birju will now introduce our guest and begin this conversation over to you.
1: Thanks so much for creating the container, Stephanie. And I have the opportunity to introduce our guests. Our guest today is Dr. Amishi Jha. Amishi is a professor of psychology at the University of Miami and director of the Neuroscience Research Lab. Her work has been featured on major news sources such as NPR, TED, Joe Rogan, and the New York Times. Her recent book, Peak Mind, was a national bestseller. I would like to also say that I'm particularly joyful in this conversation because she's a family member. Amishi, thanks so much for reflecting with us today.
2: It's great to be here.
1: I would love to start out with some of your recent experience. I know you recently completed a mindfulness retreat. How are you?
2: Haha. <laughs> um, well, let me just first say, I am so glad to be here, as as you mentioned, for so many reasons. I mean, as a fan and uh, heartened uh, enthusiast of everything service space, um, and you, uh, to have this conversation, this opportunity, and to be able to share some of what me, what I've been up to, what my lab's been up to, um, it's, it's a real privilege. So, very, very happy to be here. and yes i for the first time since like probably many of us uh the pandemic i was able to go on retreat that didn't involve being in front of a screen uh with other people but actually in a physical space with other people and it was a four-day retreat so a little bit different than some of the longer retreats that i've been able to do um so beneficial and it just there's a, you know i know a lot of us have experienced this too of uh, so much can happen, just like we're doing on this call when we're in this virtual shared space. But there's a different quality when we're physically in others' presence. And this happened to be an Asian and Pacific Islander retreat. So everybody at the retreat center, it was held at, I was at Insight Meditation Society, which I've been to many times and I love. Uh, but being in that space with people of Asian, South Asian, uh, and and Pacific Islander descent was a very different experience and really filled me up in a in an unexpected way um so it was it was very beneficial i could say more about that but to start
1: well I love, I love that as a yes yeah, <laughs> yes i love that as a context setter knowing that you are on the other side in, in many ways of a lot of uh foundation setting in terms of your work providing guidance for people to do this kind of uh path in their own lives and so uh, context center for the audience here when and why did attention and stress become something that you were interested in what do you even mean when you talk about these topics
2: yeah so I have been a student of attention for over 30 years now uh, formally when I was in undergrad my final two years of undergrad were spent in a research lab that focused on the brain system of attention and the reason i found attention so fascinating is because i actually got into brain science with this understanding that this is this incredible organ that can change itself which is so aligned with what we're going to talk about today in terms of transformation that there's actual neural transformation so in in kind of picking what area of neuroscience i wanted to study i knew i wanted to pick something that would have a very profound effect on the way the entirety of the brain functioned and attention as a brain system does that it actually recalibrates and we know this from our own experience but it can recalibrate how the entirety of the rest of the brain functions so sometimes i'll call it the brain's boss and um it was really it's, it's really exciting to study the brain's boss because you learn a lot about basically all the brain systems that occur but one thing started happening in my work after i had gone through grad school and and postdoc years where really i was just probing the fundamental brain biology of attention. Like how does it actually work, et cetera. So that's what led me to a deeper understanding of how powerful it is. Um, but when I started developing my own lab, at, that was then at the University of Pennsylvania, we started doing studies that were trying to ask a different question, which is how can you perturb this very powerful brain system? What can you do to mess it up? Which sounds strange, but really it was a way to get a deeper understanding of how the brain system of attention works. So we would do things like uh, have people do very attentionally demanding tasks sit in front of a computer screen, uh, ask them to do something like, you know, track visual images or respond to certain stimuli, and then we'd mess them up by presenting negative images or we'd stress them out by saying, no, go faster, go faster, or you're getting everything wrong. Really, contri- really fun, kind of nice things to do to people. <laughs> but we did it on purpose because we wanted to see the circumstances and thresholds that would really cause people to start to fail. And unfortunately, what we saw was that we could very easily and reliably cause this extremely powerful system to fall apart. That was good insight into how attention works, but it got me really sort of troubled because uh, this now, if we just place in time when this occurred, it was right after 9-11. and um, mm-hmm. we knew at that time, you know, we were in a, the whole country was sort of in this high alarm, high alert state, and we knew that there were certain people, for example, military service members um, and so, sort of support organizations, that were in this high demand, multi tour cycle. Then I just would look around me living in Philadelphia and think of all the medical and nursing professionals or first responders or all the people that made my community work uh, and helped us in dire circumstances that would have these same qualities of what we were perturbing artificially in the lab, stressful circumstances, right. negative circumstances, um, and performance really matters. I began thinking, you know, this is interesting that we're understanding that the brain can fall apart, but this is, the kind of climate that people have to do their best work. And when you talk to a firefighter, it's not, oh, yeah, I don't like to be stressed. It's like, no, stress is not a problem. <laughs> I run into the burning building, right? So uh, that's what sort of started transforming my interest from attention and how it works into how to make it work better and how to train it. And so I kind of became obsessed in some sense of like, we got to figure out how we can protect it. And we would try all these different things, light and te- light and sound technology, solutions like let, let's see if we can stimulate the brain in a particular way to protect it didn't work mm-hmm. or let's give them positive mood inductions to keep attention steady in the midst of a lot of challenge and demand didn't work and a bunch of other things that all basically didn't work didn't work didn't work and it, and it really it really bugged me that we couldn't find a way to support attention and then out of a long story short in some sense and we can talk about the longer part of the story but through a series of personal Events in my life, I came to become reacquainted with meditation and mindfulness meditation in particular, and then started bringing that into the lab with the idea that, well, let's try this. And there were many reasons why it was actually kind of the perfect solution. At this moment, what I'll tell you is that of all the different things we've tried, it's the only thing that we've found reliably protects attention uh, from degradation under high stress, high demand circumstances that have these qualities of of a lot of stress and negativity. So, long answer.
1: That's amazing. No, it's great. And as a, as a table setter, what I find interesting and unique is my understanding is that your decision to then see this one thing that has this unique opportunity to make a real difference in the boss of the brain. And yet, my understanding is that choice of choosing to focus on mindfulness was not fully embraced. Can you talk about the inner clarity that is required to engage with a topic that you feel passionate about when things like your bosses, your family, your finances, the institutions you're connected to, they might be like, okay, but that's pretty new age.
2: Oh, more than new age. It's more like, are you seriously going to commit career suicide? What are you doing? You know, we're an Ivy League institution. We're serious and studying these topics is not appropriate for this environment. That was sort of the message that I was getting. But just to kind of back up, because you know it didn't come out of nowhere that I decided to pursue this. Um, it came out of a very personal, um, direct experience with high stress, high demand in my own life, which was part of the fact that I was at this high power, uh, high demand institution and had just had a child and had a husband who was in graduate school and uh, I'm sure at that point, as my cousin, I called you many times and uh, wanted to 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 cry into the phone about how difficult things were. But it was a very difficult time in my life, and what I realized was that, and it was ironic, right? So I study attention. That's what I study. But the insight I had was, oh yeah, that's the system that is totally offline right now. I cannot access my attention. So even before we tried all these things in the lab, I'll just tell you, the personal journey was figure this out. Just, you cannot be distracted. You can't be so distracted that you can't pay attention to your child. Uh, you know, I just remember mm. this very poignant moment of coming home at the end of a long day. And there were many long days in the early stages of one's career when you're really trying to devote yourself to what you're doing and, and succeed. Um, but it was important to me when, um, uh, when, when my son, your nephew, was very, very young, uh, to have every evening be the time I would give to him. I mean, no matter what was happening in the day, that was our time together. And he would see me, and I would see him, and it would be our connection time. So and I had, part of that time was reading to him. But there was one moment where I was reading the storybook, this book to him, a Dr. Seuss book that I'd read thousands of times. Like, I could probably dictate what what the words were page after page, you know, that experience. And we got to this one page and he kind of put his hand on the book and looked up at me and asked what one of the things on the page was. And I actually had no idea what he was talking about. So this sort of <clears throat> autopilot mode had taken over and that really, really affected me. Cause it was like, this is the thing that I think is the most important time of my day when there's nothing more important than being here. And I'm not here now. And he's like three. So if I can't be here now when he's three, what's the trajectory of this? And a panic started arising. Like, this is not the way I wanna live my life. Plus the thing that I can't do was the thing I spend my whole day studying, paying attention. So I was like, okay, I'm just gonna hit the literature. We're gonna figure this out. You know, It'll take me a week maybe to figure out what, what do people do when their attention doesn't work? Cause remember, my interest as a scientist wasn't in, in trying to make attention work better. It really wasn't just understanding its basic brain biology. So it was never something I'd really pursued, but when I started pursuing the literature on this and, and delving in and finding nothing, there was nothing that would really guide me as an individual, how to regain a distracted mind that was on autopilot. Um, and And I was like, that's not right. <laughs> how do we not know this? And that's what kind of prompted me to understand that, oh, there's this interesting parallel where... We're in the lab, we're studying this because we're perturbing attention. And in my own life, I don't have a solution to my own distractibility. Um, and and then learning about mindfulness uh, through through actually a, a very senior um, colleague, Richie Davidson, who had mentioned meditation in one of his lectures at Penn. And he got the, he got the same quizzical look that I ended up getting years later from me. Like, why, what are you talking about meditation? Um, I really thought it was an inappropriate thing to bring up at a serious neuroscience lecture. <laughs> and, you know, and I was a skeptic because, you know, in our, in our family, we know that this is not something that was not heard of. I mean, it's something my earliest memories are of my dad meditating. I mean, literally waking up and saying, oh, he's sitting, freshly showered, doing his Mala." So I knew this was a tool that.
1: This, I'm, I'm curious why, given that context that you had, it felt so out of place
2: because it felt like a personal decision certain people made from certain cultural backgrounds that might be good for them. But it was not a serious enterprise that one might entertain in a, in a neuroscience laboratory setting. So it was sort of like, yeah, that's great for that context, but in my life, that's not something I'm gonna bring into the lab.
1: Right. Um,
2: so anyway, but it bugged me that he said that because it was actually in response to a question about how to make a brain that was in a negative state look like a brain that's transform it into a brain that's in a more positive state mood wise and he said meditation that was his answer and i was like oh gosh really meditation but i respected him and i and i thought this is worth checking out and it happened to converge around the same time i was having this crisis of attention so anyway went to the pen bookstore picked up a book luckily a good one mindfulness uh, meditation was actually meditation for beginners by jack cornfield and I said, I don't know what this is about. I know it's part of, you know, I know family members that, have, that practice meditation, but just started committing myself to practicing and was kind of shocked in a good way that, oh my gosh, everything we study in the lab is right here, but it's a direct instruction to me in terms of how to guide my attention. And the other part about it was that Jack in his guidance had so much insight into what was happening inside my mind with regard to attention that it really like excited me. Like there's a whole other enterprise, a whole other domain of expertise that has been around for thousands of years where attention is front and center. So it was trying it out myself, seeing that I was now more present to my life that made me say, let's see if we can apply it uh, to the laboratory setting. Kind of like, let's put it to the hard test of science. Maybe I'm just one odd case of one that wasn't typical, but now let's see what science has to say about it.
1: I'm actually hearing further, right? Like, because if you're getting pushback, it's not just enough to sign up for something new and novel. You have to have a serious investment. It sounds like that serious investment came from your own personal struggle with these these uh, uh, sectors in the brain.
2: Yes, it definitely came from the, the motivation um, came from my personal journey with it. My confidence that it was worth trying came from the personal journey. But I was completely open that we might not be able to interrogate something that I as a human being could feel right. the effects. The, the tools of science may be too blunt to pick up on it. And I was open to that uh, because even if we put somebody in the scanner and had them practice, we might not be able to see any impact. If we had people go through a multi-week mindfulness training program and applied the the tools of attention from modern neuroscience, we still may not be able to see it. But I thought it was worth trying out and to keep the highest bar of scientific sort of impeccability. Right. That if we did find something, there was no question that I did this in a way that through all objective, goal standard procedures, um, followed those.
1: So tell me about how the key topics of your study have evolved. I mean, this was a this is a sort of context-setting feed story but you've focused on so many subtopics within this domain over the last few decades and it'd be great if you could just provide some high-level context on what those have been
2: yeah 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 so you know you just heard the initial part of the journey really going from the notion of attention as powerful to understanding that it's vulnerable and now really a big question mark of is it trainable the first step of understanding if it's trainable you know and this again to place this because it kind of sounds strange now to say, what do you mean? The science of mindfulness is all over the place. Like you can't walk through your grocery store aisle without seeing every magazine cover, something about meditation and mindfulness and open up the app store on your phone and there's so many apps. Well, that was not that moment, right? This was 20 plus years ago now and well, 20 years ago really um there was no science of of mindfulness there was a a, a little bit of science back in the 70s and there was a real dry spell for many years so by the time i wanted to pursue this it wasn't like i had a huge literature to uh lean into and there really was nothing on attention and mindfulness uh in particular so the first thing was can we f- pick up a signal if we apply the interrogation tools we have like all those experiments I was doing in the lab to see if I could mess up attention. Well, could I actually give people mindfulness and improve attention? Could I do the opposite of what we're doing in these contrived laboratory settings? And if that was a go, then I was on a mission. Like, all right, now all those groups that I, that led me to this kind of moment of, hey, it's not cool that people can't pay attention, they can't do their jobs uh, that have life or death consequences, whether it's healthcare providers or first responders or military service members, or frankly, any leaders. and all of us need our attention to function so once we found that there was a signal there was a way we could uh, determine that attention was changing in, in the in a good direction not just degrading when we perturb it but now in, enhanced and uh improving then it was let's get practical how do we take something and by the way the starting point for the in, the investigation thankfully i did not have to make up on my own we could borrow from 2500 years of of uh spiritual practice that had been done at many different existing retreat centers at that time. And we could look at something that was already developed for several years at that point, mindfulness based stress reduction uh, developed by Jon Kabat-Zinn uh, 40 years ago now and had already had a lot of um, roots in medical settings. So I could say let's use a manualized program as the starting point. But one of the things that we discovered pretty early on if we go from just there is a signal mindfulness does have an impact to now how do we make it accessible to a broader group of people mindfulness-based stress reduction was very useful i mean the the evidence was already start starting to accumulate but what it what what it didn't do was really address the kind of framing that was gonna be more approachable for people in the kind of professions that I was talking about. So mindfulness-based stress reduction, like the name, is tied to stress and symptom reduction. When I would talk to groups like leaders or first responders or, or medical and healthcare providers, they were not interested in stress reduction. They were interested in performance enhancement. They were interested in more well-being in the face of the kind of demands that they had. So I knew that the framing might have to change, but the other bigger impediment, more so than the framing, was the time like mbsr takes about 24 plus hours over eight weeks uh, with a request for participants to practice 45 minutes a day and that was a no-go like thank you no thank you we, there's no way we're spending 45 minutes a day uh doing this practice and so um that's how my program has evolved it's gotten much more interested in what is the minimum effective dose how can we contextualize it and how can we scale access to groups that may not naturally gravitate toward mindfulness training, but who also have vulnerabilities in their attentional performance that has real-life consequences.
1: Can, I'd like to jump in there. I'm curious about your reflections on the value of science as a bridging language, such that you're able to reach groups that may not pay attention or may not be able to pay attention due to funding or whatever other complex societal issues are going on that now are able to have access because of the sort of fitting into a particular paradigm. Because as we know, the research was out there, the practices were out there, MBSR was actually being done.
2: So you're saying, does the scientific evidence open doors for people to to actually pursue practicing? Is that, was that what you're asking?
1: In a way that they would not have without science as a sort of mediator that, for a lot of people, uh, particularly in the West, there's this orientation of things are not real unless they can be validated in the form of a scientific method.
2: Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'm sure that that's the case, but that wasn't really my interest in what I was doing. I think it is the case that there's many people like me, right? I mean, frankly, I'm the first first person that would say that. Yeah, I was a skeptic until I could see evidence myself. I was like, well, I don't know. Um, you know, it's, there's a lot of things that are good for people, but is it something that I think I should give somebody who's about to deploy to a war zone? Like it was really that. Should I give this to people in medical training because it's gonna have consequences. It's gonna take up time from something else they should receive and it should work if it's gonna be offered to people. So evidence I think is important if the goal isn't um, personal spiritual development, but advantaging performance in life or death professions, frankly. But the thing that the science did do f- as far as I'm seeing in our last 20 years of work is it provided answers of what the boundary conditions are of what will work in certain conditions. So what we found, for example, is that we, you know, MBSR was the starting point, eight weeks, 24 hours, 45 minutes a day. But the series of studies we've been able to do is saying, can we reduce that? Can we reduce it from eight weeks to four weeks or two weeks? Can we reduce it from 24 hours to 16 hours to eight hours to four hours? And I pushed that limit of the actual prescription of what the program would be, as well as the daily practice, and found at what point, yes, we maintain attentional benefits, and at what point we start losing them. And that's what gave us sort of the science-based evidence that says, really, it doesn't look like you could push faster than four weeks of training, where people are receiving about an hour or two, usually two hours a week for four weeks. And you really can't go lower than about 12 minutes a day and see benefits. Now remember, my whole target was not personal transformation. It was, can we see tractable attentional changes? Uh, can we see protection in the this brain, powerful brain system? So that's how the science helped me, is that I could say, yeah, when I go into an organization and I say, may I have uh, four weeks uh, and eight hours of time of your employees or your group members, and the response is, no, but we'll give you an afternoon, you know, or we'll get, we'll get, you can fit you into a workshop. I'll be like, thank you, no, thank you, because that'll be a waste of your time. If we can't actually do a training program in a way that the evidence suggests is the minimum dose, um, it's not really worth anybody's time. And that also gave me the ability to kind of say, um, there's a reason that it takes a minimum amount of time because it actually is training the brain in the same way physical exercise, nobody would say, Oh yeah I'm gonna do a marathon but I, I really only want to work out once um, and I'm still gonna be able to, like, <laughs> to like that's just not gonna fly but nobody thinks about it in terms of the brain and we should because the brain is an organ and, the rest of the body
1: and is that something that you have you have shown like visually I believe you study using uh, uh, MRI or functional MRI machines like people meditate or practice mindfulness for 12 minutes and you can literally see their brains being different on the screen.
2: Okay. So, um, no, <laughs> not in that way. So, so there are plenty of studies that have been done that have looked at the brain basis. So you take people, you bring them in, put them in the scanner, have them do some kind of attention task and then have them go through a multi-week program, bring them back again, look at what the brain looks like and see that the brain looks functionally different. That has been done. In my lab, we do that. We we don't we don't track people um, uh, because the kind of groups that we work with, we you know, I, I you can't bring um, very easily firefighters to do that kind of work, especially when they're busy doing their jobs. So what we do <laughs> is you, we usually bring the lab to them. So we will, uh, and we don't bring brain technology. We just look at behavioral tasks, objective performance measures. Invalidated uh, cognitive neuroscience tools, so we give them tasks and they're performing so we get objective measures of their accuracy or how fast they are or how many problems they got right. And then we'll have them do that over multiple weeks, and that is what led us to say oh look their behavioral performance looks good if we go down to four weeks and eight hours, but if we go down to two weeks falls apart, we don't see the benefit anymore. Or if we go from eight hours to four hours, we don't see the benefits anymore. Same thing with mm. the number of minutes of practice per day. There is a dose response effect so that the more minutes people are spending in daily practice, the more benefits they're getting on that task performance. And there's a dwindling decline when you get to about 12 minutes and you go below that, you don't. it looks like there's no con- concrete tractable benefits um, for the kind of measures that I use.
1: For all those listeners who are used to the idea of eight minute abs, that was not scientifically validated, or this is. It's so, <laughs> great to know that that's been out there.
2: Yeah, but I would also I'm say. I'm curious. But I, I mean, ahead. I just want to say that I just came back from a meditation retreat where I would, you know, uh, am I going to change my tune now and say, really, 12,000 minutes is what you want to go for, right? I mean, I wish that for everyone. I mean, I really, this is very true because I know myself that the nature of transformation um, is very it's a journey. It's a continuous journey. And what I'm talking about preserving a very powerful brain system for the purposes of people doing their high demand job. Right. And that if we move, it's just like a couch to five K. Get yourself doing this. You're protected. But the more you do, the more you can benefit and frankly, move toward doing more. So I just want well, to interesting
1: because and if you if you think about running, it's not necessarily right like that. Right. Like like more running is not always better for the system, but it sounds like there hasn't been like larger scale studies. Well, you know, is it twelve thousand minutes or are there negative effects of something like that over time? I,
2: yeah. I mean, I think people are starting to look to see what the effects are of longer practice. In fact, some of the very early studies that led Richard Davidson to say meditation when I asked him that question about how to get a negative brain to look more positive, were based on was based on his work with monastics, who did have multi 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 year retreats. In fact, meditating was a lot of the monastics full time jobs. Um, but but the interesting thing about the brain is that it's not it, it starts deviating from the way well, maybe not, but in some ways deviating from physical changes in the body, because the nature of the transformation changes. So let me say what I mean by that, like I, I, I'm teaching an undergrad course right now and the students as part, it's called mindfulness, attention in the brain, and part of it is learning about the brain science. It culminates in them writing a grant uh, uh, to propose new studies because, you know, we're, we're just at the beginning of this field, uh, but I have them practice uh, every day as part of the class. And uh, we just had a discussion yesterday and I thought it was so funny because I asked them, so in your journey now we're about week what eight or nine in the semester, and I said we were reading articles about mind wandering, having off task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity. And I said, let me just ask you to check in for a minute. So if you just had to, you know, let's say when you were practicing, you'd have a little piece of paper and you'd make a check mark every time during your formal 12 to 15 minute practice of all the times you were mind wandering. Do you think that the number of check marks has stayed the same since the beginning of the semester, increased or decreased? Right, like, are you noticing? Is mind wandering happening more often, less often, et cetera? And unanimous uh, hand raising for more often. They're making more check marks essentially, and I was like, this seems really counterproductive. Like, why would you do some kind of mental training? We're now <laughs> more off task, right? And they all like were kind of like shocked that I would say that. They're like, no, 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 it's not that we're more off task. It's that we're picking up where our mind is more often. We are better finely tuned instruments to notice our mind wandering. And that was a very proud moment for me as a professor, because wow. I was like, you're getting it. You're getting the nature of your own mind changing. <laughs> and you're understanding that it's not that your mind didn't wander before, it's that you were unaware of it. And what was really heartening is that they see that unless we are aware of where our mind is, we cannot change the direction of our action. There is no hope for transformation if we're blind. So kind of full circle to what we've, what I've been up to. I love that. Yesterday. Yeah.
1: I would I'd love to connect that in. This might be more in the, in the realm of the personal, but I'm curious if you know, on either side of your life, the community here at Service Basement Broader Ecology, my understanding is really interested in things like service, Values-based living, call it pro-social uh, outcomes, connected to inner practices, of course, one of which, a big one of which is mindfulness. So I was curious if you could share any, uh, any things that you've seen either personally or maybe even professionally that connect to how mindfulness is not just something that has been shown to impact attention, but other domains and perhaps even the domain of values development or pro-social behavior
2: yeah such a good question and i always get you know i always get a little bit um cautious when i talk about my work um in certain communities because i want to make clear like i study attention that's what i study that's not saying that's the only thing that changes with mindfulness right i mean it's my tiny lens into this world of, uh, of a transformative practice um, and that I'm trying to it's not only that I'm studying one out of many different functions, but I'm studying it in a very specific context of with high demand groups under the most high demand circumstances. So it's a very narrow uh, lens that I've got on it, but even within that context um, and I do think it relates to service space because it's kind of funny. I was thinking about this um, in connecting with this community is, you know, most of the groups I work with service is a huge component of their identity service. Military service, service as first responders, service as nonprofit community leaders, service as medical and nursing professionals, and there is a dedication, commitment to put service and one's personal and professional um, priorities more in lines of the giving to others and at the sacrifice of oneself. So it is interesting that in some sense. I live in a world where the most of the participants are service-based people, but not in the way that we're talking about here because the paradigm is obviously uh, very different. We're not talking about um, one's personal volunteer effort in most cases, we're talking about their job, um, but it's done with the same spirit in many ways. You know, the thing about mindfulness is that if, if, what happens as we practice and we're able to focus our mind and notice our mind wandering and really have a recouping of the resources that for i'll just speak from an intentional point of view that get lost in our day-to-day lives from things like stress threat poor mood um a lot more is available to us so you know let's just go back for a second to to talk about what the utility when i call attention a powerful brain system it's powerful because it fuels, and I really do think about attention as a fuel, our capacity to think, you know, literally have a train of thought, our capacity to connect, understand the perspective of another, show care, consideration, collaboration, and our our ability to feel, experience emotion, and regulate that emotion. So if that's what attention fuels. And now you don't have that capacity or it's lost because of the stressful circumstances that you're in. And now you give people a tool to regain those capacities. A lot of really interesting things start happening. For example, you understand the context that you're in right now. You are as one, like I understand the circumstances I'm in right now. Another really interesting thing that we've seen service members and first responders say is, I'm reminded of my own ethical code of what matters to me in my profession and in my personal life, my clarity on what's right and wrong, present again. My ability to extend understanding to those around me and see them as the common humanity that is around me, present to me. And you know, just spontaneously, uh, we had one of our. It was a really s- a sweet sort of reflection. One of our initial Marines that we had trained uh, after he came back from Iraq after he had been trained, he he noticed that unlike his prior deployments where it was the enemy, and he was in that totally fueled autopilot mode of they're the enemy to this is a, a woman. Um, and that's a boy. And that could be my boy. That could be my son. Like you just saw this natural expression of common humanity. And so though it's not something we formally study in my lab and others have looking at the uh, changes in pro-social behavior, um, and even ethical decision-making is something people study. We're seeing it emerge, even though that's not sort of the framing of why we're doing it. And the norms, values, ethics that these organizations and these individuals hold are returned to them, which I think l- lends itself to pro-social behavior.
1: Super helpful. I, I want to I shift tack a little bit, um, touch on what you had uh, briefly alluded to earlier with your students. Um, applying for grants as part of a class, and just reflecting on the role of funding in the academic and the research space, being a, a sort of subtle shaper of what it is that gets studied. And I was just curious if you could reflect a bit on how you've been able to build new pathways for funding for, for a space that, as far as I understand, didn't exist 20 years ago, and now even still is very much in the wild, wild west.
2: Yeah, so great question because it's a very practical question. So much of an academic's an academic researcher's life is spent with the exhausting task of writing grants and chasing money. But that's true for many organizations where money is not lost. Um, but thankfully, you know, the National Institutes of Health had already moved toward understanding that a disease based approach alone is not the only way. Maybe we could look at other approaches to see how you could have not only flourish, but thrive. And one organization that did that was something called the National um, Institutes of Integrative and Complementary, What NCCIH, National Institute of Complementary and Integrative Health. <laughs> I don't know if I got the acronym right. They were one of our first funders. When I first was just saying, let me see if there's a signal, they were able to do that. But again, my interest became much more practical. Like I felt like there was an urgent need to take action. And once there's a signal, let's do this applied thing of getting out in the real world and starting to see if we can offer this tool um, really. And I say tool not to denigrate it, but to say an approach, a framework, a set of practices that may support people. Um, and that's when I moved to looking at the Department of Defense to fund um, our work. And I was like, there's no way we're going to get funding from the Department of Defense to study mindfulness, right? Like, I just did not think this was going to happen. But we wrote our first set of grants. And I do think the timing really helped us because it was almost like they were throwing up their hands, like, we don't know how we're going to help. We've been on, you know, at that point, seven continuous back-to-back deployment cycles and the suicide rate was going up, PTSD was increasing, domestic violence in this community, and then the contagion of veterans returning and seeding our society with very problematic individuals that were going to not only have their own lives disrupted, but potentially, uh, you know, contagion into the lives of all their family members. Um, they were like, yeah, sure, mindfulness. I mean, that's the way I think of it. We'll try it. We'll try anything. Uh, and the funny thing was, in the first time we got those grants, um, we got $2 million in funding uh, because I'd done all these pilot studies and I could not get a single military leader to accept our project. So the funders had wow. decided, but then nobody would take us. And it took me it took me a year of like, basically, I didn't know a single person in the military before I started this work, uh, but making a personal appeal, showing our case, showing our data. And we got one uh, leader to accept the project, to try it out. What happened after that project, and thankfully it was a successful project, is every soldier that came through um, literally said, get this to my spouse, like I'm about to be deployed. Usually it was she, she's back here holding down the fort, get this to my spouse. So then I approached the DoD and I said, can I apply for funds for military spouses and military family members? And they said, no we're not going to fund you to do that.
1: Okay.
2: This is where it gets to your question, which is what do you do when there are not open paths to research funding? And I mean, I guess I want to share this just because I think this is what we have in common with the community of people listening to me now. Um, we have to think about how to solve problems in a different way. And if the, if the, tra- if the traditional approach isn't working, how do we bring our own competencies, interest, and frankly, activism, that in some sense can be disruptive uh, to to a space to try it out in a different way. So, so it was really funny. So there was a direct no from the the DoD. And part of it was that we didn't unlike my first two grants where I had pilot data, I had no pilot data on whether it would be helpful to uh, spouses. So what I decided to do is I'm just, i was just like, I got to get pilot data and I got to get funding to, to to get pilot data and i'm definitely not going to be able to get funding by just asking people on the range of what i had received from the department of defense and i'm like and where am i going to meet these people that are going to give me money to study military spouses and mindfulness like it just felt like an impossible situation but that um that winter i got invited to the world economic forum to speak about my work on mindfulness and you know, it's an honor to go to the World Economic Forum, I guess, I think there's all kinds of controversy around it. But what I decided was, this is my chance. There are people here that might be interested in and open to this. So I actually wrote to like the World Economic Forum's Facebook page, like kind of their internal social network. And I just looked up, you know, anybody that had words like women, um, support, foundation, you know, maybe contemplative practice. And I wrote to, I don't know, a hundred people. And I got like two hits back, two people wrote back to me. One of them was Ariana Huffington. So that was great. And I got to meet her. Uh, and she was just wanting to check out what we we're up to. The second was a very unusual person who was a, actually a Greek oil baron, uh, whose wife had really become interested in contemplative practice. And I had lunch with him and I said, I need $50,000 because I need to do a project with military spouses. And thankfully, he said yes. And that's how I got the, I was able to conduct the first pilot study. Then I went back to the DOD and got another $2 million grant and now have been able to have a method by which to do this. So it took a lot of like maneuvering, but just like everybody in this call understands, when there's a personal interest and motivation and we want to put our best sort of resources forward, a lot can be possible.
1: I really appreciate you saying this because. I think in, in a lot of these kinds of spaces, we don't have open conversations about how the stuff gets paid for. And people do have um, the financial side of their lives in a variety of ways. And it's a, it's a large spectrum of how and, we uh, address and relate to that. Yeah,
2: I really I, I would love you to ask. Now, I was going to say, I really appreciate you asking. And I just wanted to say that it's not over. Um, there are constantly communities now that we have been successful in what we've been doing and the word is sort of out on the benefits of mindfulness training i'm getting approached often in in many heartbreaking ways of how we might be able to offer a training program etc most recently from people in ukraine and um we just decided we're gonna we, as much as we can we'll do it pro bono but what i realized is that the people in ukraine that are learning these practices to offer to others if we do it pro bono that's our time but we don't have they're not they can't do it pro bono and you know, it just gives you a sense of the resilience and really the integrity and grit of the Ukrainian people I asked our one of our collaborators you know we're training you to do this how are you financially how are you going to be able to do this and the, his response was just like oh my god he's like no no no. I'm fine I'm totally good I can support myself and I'm good for two more months
1: it's like oh. <laughs>
2: Wow. So again, I'm on a mission to try to fund a lot of that work too. But it's an unending thing. of Of uh, the money is non trivial, uh, because even if I want to give my time, um, it's very hard to convince the university to donate theirs, especially when there's paid research ass- assistance and technology involved, right. etc. Anyway, I appreciate you asking.
1: Super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So so um, uh, I have I have a list of questions that are less. Orthodox. And so I'm curious about trying to dive into some of that because I feel like you've got a unique lens in terms of uh, either personal opining or connecting to what you've seen in your research work. I'm curious about when, when <clears throat> at least in my context, um, I've seen folks who start doing deeper practicing, mindfulness and similar, that things start coming up from inside. Um, maybe the past, right? We call that trauma and shadow and these kinds of things. I'm curious if you could talk about your experience with big feelings as it comes up around this. It's not just about being effective, but now it's like, Oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't know that this was there inside of me and now I have to deal with it. How does that work? Or even like anger within uh, a professional environment? There's so many ways in which big feelings happen.
2: Yeah. Um, hundred percent, you know, and I'll just, I mean, I'll, I'll say one thing that was to the past. And then one thing about just what happened to me on retrieve recently. Um, so in the past, you know, I mentioned that whole episode with my son and kind of that prompt me, like not being able to know what he was talking about when I was reading to him. But the other thing that had happened at that time was that I lost feeling in my teeth from grinding. Like I couldn't feel my front teeth anymore. And it was, I feel like I was so checked out of my life that, and I let things progress to the point where I was grinding my teeth to the point of numbness and was unaware until the point where I couldn't speak. So that's a pretty big, I guess, lack of feeling because <laughs> uh, it was total absence of feeling. That kind of was further evidence that I needed to do something about this. And in terms of the transformation aspect, you know, you often hear about like, oh, and now everything's great. I started practicing mindfulness and everything's great. But I think what's what was so striking to me is, first of all, it's not always great. Oftentimes, checking in with, uh, with what is actually occurring gets you a deeper sense of what is not working in your life uh, or the way you are operating in your life that's not working for your wellness, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is sort of what I was coming to understand. And, you know, it was almost like I could feel the, then I started really, once I started practicing, I started really checking in to my physical sensations in my mouth and jaw, and noticing that even when I would drop my son off at daycare, it was like I was violating everything that I thought I wanted to be doing in my day. Like, I could feel wow. the pain and I could feel like in my bones, Um that this is not what I want to do. I don't want to leave him. I want to be with him every minute I can. I want to be with him, especially because he was quite young. When my, when my daughter was born, you know, she started daycare 12 weeks. I mean, it's that same feeling, but denying it. And then it comes out with like clenching my jaw or, you know, tensing my neck. And when we see all and, and I think everybody could probably describe some physical sensation, tied to stress that we might not have thought is actually a response to a valid, in some sense, real experience that we're having. And so part of the learning for me was, it was multiple tools, right? Mindfulness is one to get the sort of clarity of what's going on in our lives, but also a lot of uh, loving kindness practice to like hold my own heart to say, yeah, this is hard. Um, and this does feel like a violation of what you wanna be doing. And like, I got your back, I'm here with you even in a kind of self-compassion sense, um, that helped a lot. That helped me a lot because it wow. made me not have to deny what was happening, but made me more able to hold myself in the midst of difficulty, which helped me hold up you know, a lot more in my life in the midst of difficulty. So that was sort of a big feeling that, that really helped me not only preserve dental functioning, but... But really, <laughs> the, journey, the journey of what it means to to operate in a professional environment as a young mom, which I think many, many young parents uh, appreciate. Um, but the other kind of big feeling that came up recently in this retreat I just came back from, you know, on the tales of the coronavirus and being so separated from people, um, was like truly connecting um, with the sense of uncertainty about what life is and and you know we talk about impermanence or um uh the kind of ever-changing nature of of reality we talk about no sense no self but what does that actually mean in the way you want to conduct your life um and I think it was almost like a reminder of don't reify these concepts that you're practicing to provoke, to not reify, to make them real in your embodied direct experience. But I found that I had sort of started hardening those concepts as just concepts in my mind. And going on retreat—that's why I was saying, you know, from twelve minutes to twelve thousand minutes. Going on retreat really allowed me to kind of re-embody myself uh, into how these things are not concepts. They're the—they're the nature of of of. Life, um, And that my commitment to what I'm doing in my work, but in my own life, like my commitment to practice, my commitment to doing the things I want to do in the way that I want to do them, my commitment to having my own back, uh, meaning like I'm with you, I'm here for you and with you. And uh, if there's a denial of what you actually want to be doing to have a kind of heart warm heartedness uh, and do that with my eyes open as well. So I don't know if that answers your question, Richie, but. That's sort of
1: what's been on my mind. Yeah, that's beautiful. Thank you for naming it in that way. Um, I so so what this brings up for me is this connection to um, today's approach to life, and uh, particularly how this work has impacted your constellation. Uh, I'm I'm blessed to know your family. Of course, I'm a part of your family. And uh, I'd love to hear your reflections on, on mindfulness as a practice playing a role in your family, in your lineage, uh, any reflections you'd have there. And I, I also noticed Stephanie here, so maybe we're running short.
2: Well, I'll just make it short then to say um, it helps. <laughs> it helps. And I think that it fuels my um journey to being more present in my life with all those i care about and it expands my circle of care so what is family what is closeness uh is broader now and deeper so not a specific answer but time is short so i thought anybody that's practicing keep going if you're not consider starting <laughs>
0: Thank you. Um, I'm just going to what I'd like to do now. Thank you Birju, for these wonderful questions. And we may come back to you for some more. You, you've got some uh, great insights and uh, angles in which to come in. We have some questions that have been uh, people are being quite engaged here. And so we've got a lot of really interesting questions here. And so we're just going to pick a few. We can't possibly do all of them. But one interesting one. Uh, was regarding this paying attention to attention and uh, this person says okay we need to be mindful of what we pay attention to in the moment with all the channels of distraction including monkey mind how do we come to terms with our own filter to not pay attention to the other noises that may take us away and so what i'd like to maybe add to this is we might have things we want to pay attention to but other things we're trying to keep out so i think this question was kind of relating to that
2: yeah i mean there's kind of two aspects to it. The first is to understand the nature of what attention is. And we've been using that term and I described the value and strength of attention, but I want to say just a couple quick things on attention is not unitary, uh, but it's actually kind of three main uh, aspects that I'll, I'll talk about. But anyway, understanding what attention is will empower us. The second is training it. And it ends up that once I describe the three systems of attention, um, it makes sense why mindfulness is really a threefer in some sense. You're going to tap into all three. And that is attention's job. Attention's job at the broadest level is to prioritize some things over other things. So, that conflict feeling we're getting, resolving that is what attention's doing. But let me just say maybe a quick thing about these three systems. So, one way to think about attention is like uh, what I said prioritizing some things over other things. We can prioritize based on content. So, um, this thing is the thing I should be paying attention to right now. Hopefully it's, if people are tuning in, it's the sound of our voices, the screen, etc. The metaphor I use for that is like a flashlight or a torch, depending on the part of the world you're in. Whatever it is that we direct our, our attention toward gets illuminated. That gets priority. Torch or flashlight is very handy if you're in a darkened room, right? We know that, or a darkened path, you can point it, you can hold it but um the other thing about the flashlight is that if you're in that same darkened room and you hear a strange sound growl snap something you're going to take that flashlight and you're going to point it to wherever it is that you think the sound's coming from so a flashlight or attention can get can be directed but it can be yanked and pulled and the kinds of things that pull our attention automatically are usually threatening things novel things um self-related things uh, and a whole kind of category of, of, of evolutionarily programmed in stuff, which can appear in our external environment, like, you know, your cell phone buzzing and the fact that you will gravitate toward that is because your attention is working right. The system is designed to get pulled by novel stimuli or a thought, oh, shoot, did I leave my oven on, right? Whatever that is, it can alarm you, feel threatening and grab you. So that is its job and i think it's important to understand that but another way we pay attention is not so much the flashlight by uh, directing it or getting pulled but a floodlight broad and receptive this is really regarding noticing what's occurring so if you're for example driving down the road there's a flashing yellow traffic light let's say in a construction site or school zone you don't want to be too narrow you want to be broad and aware because you don't know what's going to happen in that moment and if you're too narrow you could miss the important thing strange traffic pattern children walking etc so we want to be narrow and directed but broad and receptive so we're prioritizing with the flashlight on content with the floodlight which is the second alerting system that's formally called what we're privileging is this moment right now so what's important right now i might not know so i have to be broadly receptive so content the moment now and then the third system of attention something called executive control is where we're prioritizing what's based on our goals and the goal could be, you know, right now it's my goal is to pay attention to the voice I'm hearing. And am I on that goal or not? And when I'm not on the goal, this system helps us redirect back or it allows us to think if we should change the goal. So anyway, all of this is to say these three systems of attention and understanding how different they are can give us insight into what the trouble may be. And to say that something as simple as the mindfulness of breath practice, taps into and may actually exercise all three systems as we put our flashlight on breath related sensations, fraud and expansive noticing of where the mind is, noticing mind wandering where it occurs, and then that executive control to redirect us back. And doing this over and over again with the privacy of our own minds uh, really will empower us in our actual lives to have better control over all three systems of attention.
0: I love the three systems of attention that was just really clear the contractive expansive flashlight versus broad and I was going to say in your practice do you have where you're practicing coming into a point versus coming out I was going to say oh to broad and you went oh yeah we do to watch where the mind's wandering do you take it to broad in terms of sensory experience like as opposed to breath whole body sound so that you're yes. practicing moving in and
2: out yeah, yeah. So I bre- I described the uh, mindfulness of breathing practice, which formally we would say is a more of a, a shamatha focused attention practice, but it too has elements of this broadening as we notice the current arising of, of what's in occurring in the mind. In, in, in my book, I call this practice the find your flashlight practice because it's like, it's not just about directing it. It's like, where the heck is it? And then moving toward really more open monitoring types of practices like the one you're talking about. Um, again, to make it sort of everyday and accessible, I call it the river of thought practice, where we're really uh, getting more expansive and taking an observational stance regarding the river of conscious experience that may flow in an ongoing manner. So absolutely, and th- that's the really exciting news is that not only can we train um, multiple systems with the same practice, but we can target contemplative practices to target these various systems and strengthen them in particular so it is a type of mental cross training in some sense and we're not doing it to be olympic level breath followers right we're doing this <laughs> we bring it into our actual lives so that when the cell phone pings or the notification occurs or somebody walks in the room angry we're there to use our full capacity to maneuver through the situation
0: um just kind of following up on this for a moment. Richie Davison, when you asked him how do you go from the, I think it was from the bad mind to the good mind, I can't remember the exact wording, and he said meditation. He didn't say mindfulness. He said meditation. And then MBSR, which is mindfulness-based, was kind of the first kind of prevalent, and then you happened on your own to pick up Jack Kornfield's book, and he's kind of mindfulness based. But did you look at other kinds of meditation that weren't just? And I want to make the distinction, or maybe you want to make the distinction between what is mindfulness versus meditation, because there are other kinds of meditation,
2: yep, and I don't absolutely. know if you've explored those thank you for listening so carefully because you're absolutely right. He did not say mindfulness. He said meditation and there's a world. And I was in some sense fortunate or serendipitous that the one book I happened to pick was mindfulness. And the reason I would say it's fortunate is because then there was this already established um, medical model of how to offer mindfulness. So, you know, but the way I'd make a distinction between mindfulness and meditation is that meditation is the overarching category and in my mind meditation is engaging in again from the brain training perspective engaging in practices to help cult specific practices to help cultivate specific mental qualities and living qualities like in our in our lives so mindfulness is a it's like it's like the analogy i would give is like the term sports when i say sport or sports it's like yeah you get a general category but you you know an Olympic level volleyball player very different than a gymnast. So mindfulness within this sort of overarching category of meditation, mindfulness meditations, cultivating present-centered, non-judgmental awareness and attention, whereas con- compassion practice would be cultivating uh, through different practices, um, acknowledging and, and working on behalf of alleviating the suffering in other people, right? Or transcendental meditation of uh, examining uh, and experiencing transcendent states of connectedness. So yes, I mean, now at this point I could say there is a whole world and thankfully the field of contemplative science and contemplative neuroscience is pursuing those multiple paths to see the similarities and differences. And then of course we've got Christian contemplative prayer, Judaic prayer, I mean, every world's major spiritual tradition has its own form of contemplative practice. Um, so the, uh, the umbrella becomes quite broad uh, but again, from my point of view, as, as from the brain science point of view, it's what are the fundamental things and skills we're training and what are the qualities we're cultivating through that?
0: Wonderful. And so you can see how mindfulness is very practical and that it's our sensory experience in this moment. Now you mentioned breath practice. Do you have a specific, and I assume your book peak mind, which I don't know if we've mentioned yet, it's right behind her. You can see I just ordered it <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and it says you give little try this, try this, that you actually lay out some 12 minute practices. Thank you very much. Um, so do you, and it'll probably be in your book, uh, have specific, so mindfulness of the breath is one. Do you ever work into external sound, external sight, other sensory experiences? Do you see differences if somebody is working, like maybe if their body's had a trauma, they get their concentration with sound or something? I don't Absolutely. know. Have you seen difference with where they're focusing in their sensory experience?
2: Yes. So to answer the question regarding the book, the intention for the first category of practice is to have an anchoring object. And that anchoring object could be internal breath related sensations, or even if you want to stick to the breath, it could be the sound of the breath or it could be some other uh, external or internal anchor, right? That I, I have more kind of um, leniency around. But the key thing we're picking up on is there is a target object. Notice when the mind wanders away and return it. And then there's sort of a trajectory that is really inspired by uh, an MBSR type model where we go from uh, mindfulness uh, of the breath to body scan, to open monitoring, which is really this expansive quality where we're taking in sights, sounds from the environment as well as the inner landscape, and then a loving kindness or connection practice. So there is that whole trajectory I give um, that is part of sort of the, the standard uh, contemplative mindfulness affiliated canon, I guess, of practices. Um well, there was a second part of your question. Was there something else that you were asking? Uh
0: yes, I well I was asking if you noticed because what you just now said ah. is there was a trajectory so, and I was noticing if different ones had different
2: effects on yeah, attention. So, like thank you. Thank you for the for the nudge uh, working memory nudge. So yes. So the interesting thing about if we look within um, for example, brain imaging studies, when we have people come into a scanner and actually practice, um, there's some. this is very different than seeing the effects of a multi-week training program on brain function. This is like you're actually in the scanner and I'm saying, do a body scan or do a monitoring of sounds or um, do a loving kindness practice. Yes, there are different brain networks that would be activated. The cool thing though, for example, if you do something like um, focusing on the breath or focusing on an external object, is the attentional networks would be the same in both of those, but the target areas. So you'd have a body map, the motor cortex and somatosensory cortex that would be activated when you're looking at breath related sensations. Or if it's a visual object that's the target, you see visual areas that are active, but in both of those, you'd see the same attentional network um, that is kind of churning through when you're present versus when you mind wander versus when you return back. Um, that's what gives me some confidence in saying. These are generalizable ways, uh, regardless of what target object you may pick. There are specific benefits you may get with specific targets, but you're still, in both cases, training attention at a more fundamental and generalizable level.
0: And do you, one more, do you adjust so you have a course you take people through? Like maybe if somebody has, they can maintain better attention when they focus on a heart opening event, or when they focus on a visual event or, or is the goal to train their attention in
2: this range
0: or so, find the thing right.
2: that they're better at that one? Yeah. So, okay. So it's such a um, great question. You know, remember where I'm coming from and, and the book is the culmination of this journey, right? I'm coming from the conducting large scale research studies. So the name of the game there is not to emphasize individual differences and individual journeys, but to really say this protocol and the engagement in this protocol and the benefits. So I think that what you're describing is essentially the next steps of what the field will start to also investigate is what's the, what's the, what are individual differences? So are there particular um, personality types or life histories that make people more, more able to engage in certain practices? or certain preferences that lead to better benefit with other practices. So we don't know much about that yet. We're starting to get a handle on that. And there's some really interesting uh, insights that can suggest, not even insights, scientific findings that suggest, there's some things that may be contraindicated for certain people. Don't do these because they're not going to help you out. And then you might be kind of banging your head against a wall in some sense. <laughs> uh, and, and that's almost like what's happening in the field of medicine, right? Sort of in, in medical trials, same idea. Does this pill help for this condition? But then now we're getting to the point of sort of individual, individualized medi- medication, and in the same way, individualized meditation.
0: Right. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I'm gonna. I'm gonna let go. I could just talk to you forever. Uh, I'm gonna. Here's a question from RS. Having done the research, what is your personal connection back to the cultural and spiritual roots of mindfulness
2: and meditation practices? Mm. Great question. So, and this is something I obviously think a lot about because um, I'm in it, I'm in the middle of it, right? And my own personal history is, is sort of um, looking at that journey to me it's really interesting so if you think about going to this retreat i was just describing that i was at with all people of asian south asian uh, pacific islander descent looking around the hall at all at the meditation hall and and the meditation center and seeing all the different murthis and images i'm like oh my gosh we look more like these images than most of the people that are typically here when it's not an an api retreat that was sort of a interesting like oh wow but the other appreciation is these practices uh, have very specific roots mindfulness training and mindfulness practices in particular right with with Buddhist Buddhist teachings. and they too have taken a journey almost moving from India and more and more further east and that's where um, there has been a proliferation and a con- culturally relevant contextualization as Buddhist thought and Buddhist practices have moved. And in some ways I think about where we're at now and my kind of entry into this as it jumped the pond over the Pacific ocean and now it landed in sort of California in the US and it's continuing to proliferate and contextualize. So I do not uh, feel that there is some pure um, way in which mindfulness needs to be offered. I think that it should be honored for its history and its contextualization in the cultural a uh, context in which it developed and proliferated and was altered. And now when we think about what it is, because I don't see what I'm doing as stripping it of a cultural context, is just the cultural context that I'm emphasizing is that which already exists for the communities I partner with. So with the first responder community, it's that cultural context. And how might these practices and aspects of them relate to the challenges and aspirations of this community? Um, so context to me is very important and needs to be respected from a historical point of view, but also a current instantiation point of view. Um, and I do think it's all an experiment like we don't know. You know, is it is it the case that if you don't understand uh, the Four Noble Truths or if you don't know, um, you know, other aspects of the canon of of uh, classical Buddhist thought that you won't benefit? The data certainly doesn't suggest that. The data suggests that if you engage in practices with teaching that is coming with integrity and clarity regarding what they're aiming to promote, there are beneficial effects. And that may be controversial, but I'm okay with that. <laughs> Thank you. Um,
0: here's a question from Pavi. What is the relationship and difference between attention and consciousness? Uh, are there experiences or <laughs> are you ready for that one are there experiences or stories from your work research that point to the capacity for embodied felt experience of something beyond what we typically understand as the separate self
2: there you go <laughs> expect no less of a question from puppy uh, <laughs> I appreciate that question and it's a big question which actually many scientific meetings are now um, formally addressing some of those questions. And there's a lot in there. So the relationship between attention and consciousness itself is a murky one. And part of it is because we're still sort of scratching our heads regarding what consciousness is, what its purpose is, how it emerges, um, what its components are. Um, so I don't have a good answer for that. Let's just put it that way. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, just Say I don't have a great answer for that. In terms of the transformative effects and going beyond the self, absolutely we're seeing some evidence of that. So, um, and I'm going to do this in a way that hopefully doesn't appear to be like reductionistic. But you know, there are brain systems that we see as sort of the neural nodes of self. Meaning, if you had somebody look at a series of, well, I'll just give you an example of this. If you have somebody come into the lab or sit, lay down in a scanner and you show them uh, different adjectives and you tell them, reflect on each of these adjectives as a function of how it relates to you. Um, you know, Amishi, is she, is she uh, thoughtful, kind, intelligent, whatever, and I'm reflecting on each one versus some other third person, let's say a famous person, a Barack Obama. There are specific brain networks and brain regions that would be more active when it's self-related versus other related. All right, and then the closer that other is to you, the more it looks like self. When we mind wander when we have off task thoughts during an ongoing task or activity, we activate that same self related region. And um, regions really network so what's interesting is we have sort of a neural marker of self and then one of the interesting research questions becomes what happens as people practice does it loosen the default hold that self related neural activity has. And consistently, we're finding that it seems to. So that self-related functioning is sort of dissolving with more and more practice, um, which I think is fascinating. And it typically corresponds with one's perceived sense of sort of um, ego contr- constriction, like me as a reified entity, as that sense to d- dissolve. And this is happening in a moment by moment sense. So, you know, we're not talking about, for example, our dear friend Shinzen, and he's, he's crossed a threshold, he may never re, reemerge as a consolidated self, uh, if that truly is what enlightenment entails. Um, but it is the case that you can track it in individuals uh, tied to their phenomenology of self relatedness. So I hope that that kind of touches into some aspects of what Pubby's asking.
0: Yes, and also you're saying, our mind wandering where we tend to go is self referential. And the more we do this practice, the, the self-referential, the thinking about self dissolves away. So there's a kind of natural connection and opening to the world and interrelated empathy that arises, kind of going with the idea that was what was there all along, maybe with other stuff getting in the way. Um,
2: is that a rude It can way to say? It, it? Yeah. it can happen that way. Uh, or you can simply uh, have touching into that and then regain. The same old default that you always had um so i think the story is going to be interesting it, it's sort of like a fundamental question and when i was on retreat i was asking uh, my dear friend sharon Salzberg this very question like how can we do a study to really determine if there is buddha nature <laughs> right like we how do you construct such a study um and if we see this inherent goodness and flowing toward empathy compassion um and valuing of our of our sort of common humanity, what kind of manipulations should you need to do and how would you assess that? So this is truly where the field of contemplative neuroscience is going to have to scratch their heads and be like, you know, there are fundamental assumptions that are being made in what drives these practices, as we're talking about, based on their uh, cultural, spiritual, historical roots. And and are those uh, how, the, how are those impacting the kind of results that we see? So
0: terrific. Stay tuned. Uh, yeah. No, no, thank you. Good luck with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Finding the Buddha nature through science. <laughs> um, so I want to read one more audience question, but then there's you may have some more questions. So I want to make sure in case he got interrupted before he had some more to say. But Laura asked any insight on how mindfulness can help with ADHD and diagnosis of exec- executive function issues?
2: Ah, absolutely. So this is a big topic. Now that we find that attention may be strengthened um, with mindfulness, people want to apply it as a clinical tool for people that have a variety of clinical disorders, including ADHD. And yes, the evidence is, is now to the point where we don't have a study or two, but we have what are called meta-analyses, where we're taking multiple studies to see if there's a signal, and even meta-analyses of meta-analyses. So as the field proliferates, we're getting a stronger sense of the value and benefits that are seen. The one thing that's important to keep in mind though, is when you are offering mindfulness training to whatever group that you're working with, in the same way that I was talking about contextualizing it for, you know, time pressured high demand cohorts, right? When you're offering mindfulness training to people with ADHD, you've got to kind of think about the challenges that they have. And we did a project with adults with ADD and, you know, instead of starting with 12 to 15 minutes, which was sort of the minimum amount that we were seeing as effective, that was what happened at the end of eight weeks. So we were very careful in how we uh, built up their ability to hold practice um, and the time amount. Plus we had a lot of active practices so that we were not requiring sitting still and closing your eyes, but a walking practice. Um, and also, cultivating meta awareness. So this is awareness of the contents and processes in our own minds, because what we know is that patients with ADD, separate from any mindfulness training, patients that suffer from ADD but have strong meta awareness tend to suffer less in, their, in the kind of uh, proliferation of symptoms in their hindering daily life functioning. So we know that separate from offering mindfulness, but now if we can strengthen meta awareness through mindfulness, we may see benefits. And that's what the data is suggesting.
0: Wow, fantastic. Thank you. Virgil, you have another question I can tell.
1: <laughs> more than one. <laughs> but um, if, I, if I had to narrow it down, one thing that I'd love to get your reflections on, you see, Um this past week we had International Women's Day. You are one of the few women of color in these rarefied positions of academic authority. And I'm curious if you could share a little bit more about the personal side of what is needed to break through these glass ceilings and maybe you have an example or two of the attentional labor that is required in that kind of a path
2: yeah um that causes some big feelings like you were talking about earlier um it's been an interesting experience so you know there's so many things that i would i could talk about but let me just say a couple things so um starting out with uh the fact that, you know, even my journey with with what led me to mindfulness is as a mother, uh, frankly, and my role as a mother that felt like at odds with the way that I was at, having to be in the world. Um, plus the fact that there just aren't many women in higher echelons of academic leadership um, and there and the reality that females female led teams receive less scientific citations in the scientific literature. So, the biases are there, they're real. Um, and there is a real um, need to, you know, again, we can't change things unless there's awareness to drive better action. So, I think we're, we're to the point where we want to have more awareness of the biases that exist within academia. Um, but the other thing is that uh, I was really hopeful when I started studying mindfulness training and saw that there was a field evolving called contemplative science that this field may not be subject to some of those default tendencies in the larger academic enterprise. Like, look, we're studying being present and aware and compassionate. This, not, this is not going to happen here. Well, it happens here. Um, and this is going to be a very long journey because the same tendencies of mind, the same people. And I'm not just saying these are others. These are, you know, as as a woman who is, of course, not uh, interested in, in sexism and uh, bias behavior against women, I'm part of this system. Like we're all part of this system. So we've got to really be looking at ourselves to extract. And this is true for any social justice, social change movement is we have to really be aware as we're doing it. Um, we're not quite there yet. So uh, I appreciate you saying that the best I can do is do what I'm doing, show up, be an example for other women so that they see uh, that it is possible and to really connect around the realities of the challenges that exist, not deny. So part, part of the reason I like to share the story regarding my son and, and the challenges that it caused me is because uh, it might allow people to appreciate that the conflicts that they experience should not be pushed down and disregarded, but should be taken seriously for their own well-being and to allow for social change that would support being a particular kind of person in this enterprise. Um, so that's one thing I want to say. Let me just say one other thing about this. OK, so it actually goes to the question Stephanie said. So we talked about moving from uh, the East, I mean, from India and more East, right? And then maybe it jumped over the pond and now we've got the West. Well, in 2018, I was invited to India to speak to uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And uh, I was excited to go, of course, to meet him and to be able to present our work. But the other real motivation was I could see my grandmother and um i went to so i went to india and then after i went to see my grandmother and my entire family uh in amdavad and um my family members there said you know people know you're here and can you can you give a little talk like maybe we'll have some people over and we'll you can give a talk we'll turn into a little a few people coming over and a little talk to like 75 people showing up at this event and me giving a talk and i don't speak i speak gujarati but i don't speak about my research in gujarati so it's like how am I going to do this? Because I'm going to default. I tried to be as good as I could about it. Anyway, it was a, it was wonderful. It was a wonderful opportunity. And what really, really excited me was seeing so many women in the audience. Uh, there was a, a college nearby and a lot of the students came. And um, at the end of my talk, one of the uh, I'll call him uncles in the audience, uh, raised his hand and and I anticipated this would happen. He's like, you come here from the West to talk about your research. And you shouldn't be talking to us about this. This stuff happened here. We invented meditation. So why should we even care about everything you're saying? And why do we care about the science? We know it works. It's been around here for thousands of years. And it was like a, it was like a moment, right? Like, okay. Before I could even formulate an answer, a woman, a younger woman from the audience stood up and said, yeah, we know that there's retreats here and there's Vipassana practice. I can't take 10 days and go on a retreat. I'm managing my household. I have a job. I'm watching the children. What she is telling us matters because she's telling me something I can do tomorrow. And that is very, very important to me, because what she's telling me is that this is for me, too. And that meant a lot. It really meant a lot to me. So there you go. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Practical
0: application wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. So I have one last question. Yeah, how and there have been one there. I wish we could have gotten to all the questions. We could be here forever. It was it was quite this is very rich. Um, but how can we in the awaken call community and broader service based ecosystem? How can we support your vision and work
2: in the world? Oh, <laughs> um first thought is you absolutely already are absolutely already are um so please keep going that's the first thing i'll say the second thing i'll say is if anything i've said has been helpful to you uh and in particular i'm pointing out some of the aspects of our desire to make positive change in the world and our motivation and mission grit focus will potentially have consequences for our own well being right when when change doesn't happen as fast as we want it to um, norms aren't shifted as as in the direction we'd like in fact it feels like sometimes the world is going in the wrong direction and the kind of frustration and potentially even anger that can arise uh, to really remember to lean on these tools of practice uh, because we do need to refuel our own fu- fuel tanks to keep going. And we need every single one of you in this community and everybody that you touch to be keeping that at top of mind. We can't be mission congruent if we aren't taking care of ourselves as we attempt to make the world a better place. So please keep refueling yourselves and keep going. And thank you very much for everything you do.
0: Thank you. I so appreciate it. Like what that woman said when she stood up, what you're saying is something I can do. So you're taking it from studying the brain and what it does to how we actually affect our attention, increase our life quality, and you put it in the most practical way for even you've even got something for people with ADD working for them to get it. So thank you so much. Um, so now we're going to, before we close, I just want to invite Beers if you have a few words of closing you want to offer here.
1: Well, deep gratitude, first of all, it's, uh, uniquely special for me to be a part of this conversation and to learn new things about my cousin as a result of <laughs> this space. So a uh, beautiful sacred container and, um, beyond the, the sort of real value of attention training, to have more context into how you're being is a testament to the value of building that inner capacity, whether that's traversing the academic landscape or uh, your familial and health context and, and how that leads to these broader reflections that you shared with us. And I know they're not, they're not standard in the research, but to talk about what it means to be human that comes from your own continued depth in the practices. I will take that with me out of this conversation. Thank you again
0: and i will thank you again amishi for who you are what you do how you do it it's quite a gift and we and thank you for being with us here today and sharing your wisdom your insight your research many will benefit and have already benefited so now we're going to close our call in the same way that we opened it with a moment of collective silence this time in attunement and gratitude to honor all that was offered today as well as the invisible causes and conditions that brought us together and the to volunteers who make these calls possible thank you and have a beautiful day or evening <laughs> Thank you for listening to a recording of Awaken Calls. To access archives, visit us at www.awaken.org. And to
2: get more involved, volunteer at www.servicespace.org.